0: Hello, and welcome to the Our Resources podcast. I'm your host, Kalen Burrand. I, I want to start off today's episode with a quote by Dr. Ben Carson. He says, quote, almost any accomplishment in the history of the world has come at the hands of people who've taken risk, people who are willing to push the envelope, people who are willing to explore the unknown. Today's guest, Toby Dayu Alupana, is the essence of this quote. He's someone who knows how to take calculated risk, and he's someone who I would call an avid polymath, simply a fierce learner and a compassionate leader. Ultimately, there are few people who inspire me to the degree that Toby does, and it's my absolute pleasure to be able to share his wisdom with you, the dear listener. And to be completely transparent, I had had trouble with this introduction. Toby is someone who I admire greatly, and I do not know the words, nor do I believe that there are the correct words in the English language to describe him. Among many accomplishments, he founded the first African SME chapter, has pioneered AfroMine, which is a world-leading network of young miners. He has a master's degree focused on decision-making, and is currently pursuing a PhD at the renowned University of Witzwaterstrand in Johannesburg. And as I mentioned, simply listing his accomplishments is not doing him justice. He's someone who has has an essence that, that's beyond words. And so with that, I'll keep this introduction short. Um, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation between myself and Toby as, as much as I have. Um, And thank you for for taking the time to listen to this episode, and please take care. Anyway, on with the episode. Toby Dario Alupano? Thank you for being on the R Resources podcast. Uh, so we're, we're very excited to have you here. And to start off our conversation, I, I wanted to start today's podcast a little bit different than some of the other episodes, uh, because you, you have a background, you're, so you're a PhD candidate at the University of What's waterstrand uh, focused on machine learning, equipment, uh, maintenance, but your home's in Nigeria and you have a really fascinating um, entrepreneurial background. And so I I wanted to start off with your background in growing up in Nigeria and the mining uh, culture that you had there. So can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Um, Firstly, I want to thank you, Karelin, for having me. Um, And uh, you're very correct. My background is uh, multi-country. I first grew up in Nigeria before coming to Prosumai first graduate in South Africa. And just like you ask, um, what was my background like? I think um, for everybody it was fun, like myself, it was it was fun and I can't say that um, I regret growing up in Nigeria. It's one of the best countries that I think anybody can grow up in. Um, Uh, I don't know if you know too much about Nigeria, but all you have Nigerian friends. uh, Tell us about it. Tell us about it. (laughs) One thing about Nigeria, or Nigerians generally, is that we are always confident in our background and we are always confident about whatever it is that we find ourselves doing. So growing up, I grew up in a family of about three. Um, my dad and my mom were amazing people who inspired, inspired us to do more, to want more, and to pursue whatever it is that we fell in love with. Um, and that was how I started living, generally. And when I told them that I wanted to pursue a career in mining, they were surprised because uh, to the best of their knowledge, that is not a common field that you would expect um, somebody to pursue. My dad was a civil engineer. My mom um, is, is currently a social worker. So because of that... Naturally, it will, it will have been you know, easy for me to just pursue a line in probably civil engineering or, or probably social work because that was what I saw day in, day out. Um, but as, as, as luck will have it, <laughs> I'm in mining. And um, I had my first degree in mining engineering from Nigeria. And um, it, was, it, was, it was also something not very popular. I remember when I tell people that I'm studying mining engineering, they would keep on asking, Do you mean marine? <laughs> <laughs> And then I have to educate them about what mining engineering is, uh, what it entails, and um, the outlook for it. And literally at that point, it was just one university in the whole of Nigeria. And let me give you a perspective: Nigeria has a population of two hundred million people. Now imagine that you know population and just one university as at that time who had that yeah. degree in mining engineering. Yeah, so yes, Sorry
0: to don't mean to interrupt, but for, for reference, you know, New York City has eight and a half million people. So 200 million is quite substantial, yes, but, but is, continue.
1: So yeah, yeah, it, it is quite substantial. And for me, it was just born out of love. I, I remember um, when I was about to make that decision, um, I, had, I, had, I thought I would probably be an engineer, but Finding the specific course for me was or the specific degree to pursue or major come to pursue was where I had the challenge. So I I normally work with tables. So I had this ranking: okay, aeronautical engineer, then mechanical engineer, then computer engineer, because I love computers and technology. Um, but but I know it just happened that I fell in love with mining. I took uh, I took it on, and I loved every bit of it since it all started. Um, but yeah, that was that was pretty much how. I grew up in Nigeria and how I found myself in this space.
0: Interesting. So, so it's a recap. So, didn't have a background in mining. Did you even know about mining when you grew up? Um, I remember in a previous conversation, you said you, you grew up in a city, so it wasn't even out in the land.
1: Yes, yes, it, it was in a city um, in the south-western part of Nigeria. Um, the city was called it's currently called Akure in Ondo State. Um, um, no, I had no exposure to mining, so we to that. It was just out of love. So um, it, it's funny because I'd never seen a mine engineer. Like a, a, I told people, I'd never seen a mine engineer. I'd never been to a mine. Um, you know, but. I just felt like there's this love that I can't explain. When I did um, read about mining, so I remember spending a number of hours in the in my high school library, and mm-hmm. I'd go pick up the encyclopaedia there, just specifically reading about mining and taking down notes. I remember some of the notes I took in my you know final year of high school. Um, we were only taught those courses in like my third year of university, so literally it was just that love that I can't explain.
0: Fascinating. No, that's that's really fascinating. Okay, so Thank so you chose mining engineering, and I, I want to ask, what were your parents' thoughts? I mean, did they even know mining engineering existed? Were they concerned, worried, scared?
1: I think I think for every parent, they would always want the best for their kids or for their children. And I think that was also very synonymous with my parents too. Of course, my dad has been in the field of engineering, so he understands that there is there would always be prospects. Um, but the interesting thing is that. When he talked, he talked to me about it, and I explained to me to him that I do have a big vision. I don't know how it's going to come to pass, but I do strongly believe that I'm supposed to be in this space. It gave me the leeway to, to pursue the because my mom too wasn't too sure about the possible outcome. But you know, they just had this belief that uh, if their journey ended up being what it is or what it was at that point, uh, they, they were confident enough to know that mine too was going to be very uh, smooth.
0: I, lo- I love this story. It seems like it contrasts so much with what I'm used to hearing in terms of how students like to choose their their path going forward. And I love you said it's it's born out of love. And I can't I can't think of a better phrase to describe the the passion that you have for mining. Um, it's, it's really wonderful. Um, so. So you chose to go into mining engineering and I just kind of want to continue with your background. So how how is that perceived during your undergraduate years? What what happens next?
1: Yes. um, Just, you know, it was a very funny class, um, you know, talking about what it was like when I got into uh, my first class. Um, According to how the educational structure works in Nigeria, your first year in engineering, you do general courses. Then later on, you get into specific classes that is related to your degree of pursuit. Um, When I got to relate with my classmates, a number of them, I got to realize that because of the lack of knowledge about in a good number of them didn't want mine, they just found themselves there and yeah just taken it by the way. <laughs> and for me it was different. You know, I remember having you know saw my or seeing my name on the list of those that were admitted, I was excited and I was you know wanting something more and something exciting in, in, in the lectures. But having gone study the classes, I realized that this is not what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not expecting Um, or I'm not not seeing what I expected when it comes to mining. I wanted to be more experiential. I wanted it to be more practical. I wanted to see minds. But but unfortunately, it wasn't like that. So what I did was, in order to make um, it more visual for me and Mm -hmm. give me a perspective of what it was, I ended up looking for how I can create that in my mindset because I love my mind so much because it's creative. So Mm -hmm. I went online to search about, and that was when the internet started growing and becoming a team in Nigeria. And I would say I was privileged enough um, to have parents who also believed that technology was the way forward. So they they got us a computer, they they got us internet, and I remember sitting in front of it and just searching and searching. (laughs) A funny story, just a divergence. I realized that for a number of classes, I would sleep in class and apologies for, to my lecturers back in those days <laughs> <States. laughs> because most of the night, I was always online trying to research what is happening in the mining world outside of Nigeria because that, for me, gave me inspiration and perspective of what mining should look like. So that, for me, also inspired me to continue the process of mining when I was in undergrad.
0: That's that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I, fi- I find myself in similar situations sometimes. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I mean, obviously it's, it's worked out well for you um, you're, you're a great mining engineer and, and now you're pursuing your, your PhD in mining engineering. So let's, let's just explore really quick kind of your expertise in mining. What, what really has you excited?
1: Um, so mining is, is, is really exciting for me in the sense that when you realize that every single thing or literally every single thing that has been used within your daily activities, is somewhat related to mining. Um, then, for me, I get excited about it because I believe without it, the existence of people would be—you know—all the functionality of people would be very limited. So that—that that in itself just. Um, Makes me excited, and the fact that also maybe in Africa and realizing that a lot of the wealth of most African countries um, can be tied up to one mineral resource or the other, that also is exciting because I see it not just as something that everybody relies on, but I see it as something that economies still depend on it for for sustenance and yes. survival, and for you to provide income for people. So for me, that's that, that's more than enough to generate so much positive. That's interesting. So
0: I want to ask uh, a previous podcast guest a. Uh, Jean Zelbar, um, he's he's a financial analyst, and so when I asked him his interest in mining, I was expecting an economic answer. I was expecting him to say that the economies, you know, they rely on commodities, and so it's it's really helpful. But his answer was that he he loves mining because it intrinsically has to do with the land and our natural resources. And so I wanted to ask you, does that does that play a role
1: in your passion? I think. I wouldn't say it does, but the fact that I grew up around natural landscape, right? So I, I get to see land literally every day. And mind you, around me, I did not see a mine. So it was, it was difficult to literally equate mining to land. Interesting. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So for that, I don't think it was, it was more about land and natural resources. Of course, we know those are very important, but... It's not literally about the connection for me. It's just about the impact. Of it. I think that was what fascinates me the most.
0: Interesting. No, that's fascinating. It's a, a very an engineering answer, um, which I can appreciate. <laughs> um, okay, good. So, so we got your background down, um, and clearly you're ambitious. And this this is where I want to spend the majority of our conversation is talking about entrepreneurship and your vision for mining. Um, so. Let's, let's take a second to hop back into your earlier entrepreneurial days. And as, as far as I know, the first major turning point for your entrepreneurial career would be when you established the first SME chapter in Nigeria, or was that the first SME chapter in all of Africa?
1: Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it was the first SME chapter in Africa. And for our listener who doesn't know what SME is, it is the Society yes, of yeah, Mining, Metallurgy and Exploration. And they're based in the US. Um, By the time I joined, um, they had this claim, and I think it's very substantial, that they are the largest um, community of mineral professionals in the world. And um, for me, that was also something that I found very interesting, and I felt like, what better joy for a young mineral student to be part of this community? And um, I plugged in immediately, registered as a student member, and I saw that beyond just what I could personally benefit, I saw that there was a need for my colleagues to benefit from these uh, benefits. So I told, I shared my vision for what it would be like to be, a, to be a chapter in Africa and in Nigeria specifically. And I reached out to the organization, sharing with them, and they were so happy to assist and also integrate the chapter. And that was, um, if I can recall clearly, it should be about close to 10 years now. And I'm happy to say that it's still existent and the current team of leaders are doing even way beyond what I could have imagined when it was created.
0: Fascinating. So I, I wanna ask before before starting the chapter, did you have other businesses or startups that you did earlier on in your life? Has this been something that's relatively new for you?
1: Listen thank you for, um, for that question. I I just, you know, I would say I, I'm not the smartest in any class of opinion, or i have not being the smartest in any class of opinion. When I was yeah, a <laughs> <laughs> thank you, but uh, but this but it's very true to be honest. Um, my elementary and my primary schools, I was literally probably even not middle middle range student, probably one of those in, in the rear. But I remember when the the prefects, because we have these leaders for every class and for the school in general were selected, I told myself what what separated me from them? Why didn't they select me? Why did they have to select them? So I think that was where my curiosity started about what it means to be a leader, and from that point onwards, I'm taking steps to ensure that I'm making incremental progress with my leadership skills and with opportunities when they arise. So based on that, when I got into high school, because obviously I was done with primary, I could not be a leader yet. When I got into high school, I made sure I put in the effort. And funny enough, before I graduated high school, I remember holding about um, four to five positions at the particular time that I had to count <laughs> down several. I was telling my class teachers that this was, too, this was too much for me to handle. So I would rather delegate this to somebody else and focus on this too. And that was, that was the first time I saw that with determination and incremental progress, you can get what you want. So at that point, I realized that if that could happen for me in high school, then I think something better can happen in university. So when I got into university, I would look for the next conference to attend, to listen to speakers. But funny enough, I told people that I used to be a stammerer, like I stutter. They would be like, no, that's not true. Really? <laughs> yes, I did. Very, very. In fact, funny story. In classes, they used to be roasted or roasters being called. When it's almost my turn my heart would beat very strongly because I feel like everybody will laugh at me when I fail to pronounce just present, like present or present sound, present-ma. Then I devised a strategy. If I put an S or a S in front of present, it becomes easier for me to pronounce. So before you call my name, I'm already calling it present-sa, present But I realized that if that could be a defect, so I could work on it to make it better. I attended communication classes, a lot of them. I attended leadership classes or conferences, a lot of them. And for me, I also got a chance to read, my dad was a reader. So he had a library of books. So I remember the first book he gave me to read was the story of um, this American surgeon who separated the first Siamese students or who was leading the doctors to separate the first Siamese students. Um, ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson at that time. I think I was about age 10 at that point. when I read that book, I was so inspired. And I told myself, and it's to be great, so. <laughs> so by the time I got to university, it was a whole different ball game. We got introduced to how people set up organisations, companies that has become uh, impactful to people. So for me, and that was literally how we started. I remember also joining this organisation within the school called. Um, SAIF, Student in Free Enterprise. Uh, I think it's a global organization. And what they do was particularly look for problems within the university communities that a group of students who are in that organization could solve sustainably. So for me, when I saw how problem solving could be very instrumental to Economic growth and you know community growth in, in particular, and I was involved in it. I said, "Why don't you, I kept asking myself, why don't we have something similar in mining?" And after about a year or two in that you know organization, I re- I started SME through that reach out. I sent an email, and that was the beginning for it for me. For that's me. that's
0: absolutely fascinating. So, this is on a, on a personal note. Um, going back all the way to, to your story about staying present in the classes. I, I also had a lot of trouble when I was younger um, communicating with people, and, and it was something that really made me scared of. So I found that absolutely fascinating. And then one other commonality that the, the coincidences seem uncanny at this point, <laughs> um, uh, Dr. Ben Carson, um, I, yes. I loved him so much. I would read wow. his books, I would read his articles. He was so inspiring to me um, as, wow. as a young person. I saw you know, his, his determination to get things done was, it still is just remarkable Um, so yeah the the many coincidences Um, but anyway (laughs) okay so so you start the SME chapter Mm -hmm. and it's it's still there and it's it's grown I guess what I want to ask about that was what was one of the biggest challenges that you faced I mean was it were there naysayers
1: absolutely absolutely there were naysayers and I think Learning quite early through that experience that there would all be naysayers made me, you know, toughen up on myself, and um, made me realize that it is important for you to listen to them, but not pay attention to them. <laughs> um, made me realize that even if they're naysayers, you can still make progress with whatever it is that you are um, doing. Um, you know, just to give you a background so that you understand what it is or what it was, um, I failed to mention when I was explaining my background in Nigeria, in particular, that Nigeria is well known for their oil and um, the exports and the sales of their oil. Nigeria is currently in the OPEC you know, co- community, so they are those that decide the price and the supply quantity of oil um, across the world. Um, but uh, So because of that, most people were just wanting a career in the oil industry, as at that time, when I was in undergrad. So, most of them, if they couldn't see an immediate effect of whatever it is that you that you were trying to propose to them, it was difficult for them to, to accept it. Even if they accept they were not going to be as active as it was, you know, as as I would expect them to be. And even those that even saw some 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 green lights with whatever it is I proposed, there is just that mindset that they have that it's still mining. It's not it is not oil. So because of that. I just kept pursuing, and just get pursuing because I knew the picture I had in my head.
0: Interesting. Did you have any any early subscribers, You know, people who really latched onto this idea and helped you develop it?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, a, a quick story on how I formed my team. So uh, we got this go ahead from SME and they requested that for it to function, you needed about 10 people minimum. Okay. And because of that, I did something I had not done before because I, I used to be this very quiet person. I'm still quiet. I'm still so reserved. Um, I, I went in front of the class of about 96 people. That was my classmate. Telling them that, oh, my name is Toby. I'm privileged to start up this organization. It's based in the US and this is the first chapter in Nigeria. Um, I would need to be a part of it. Are you interested? You know, this indicate." I did that a number of times. I realized that that wasn't working. I think at most I got about three people who were from, my said, out of 96 people who were studying mining engineering. So I wanted to see how big the class was, but not everybody could see the picture. And after I realized that that wasn't working, I went back to my drawing table and I was like, okay, how can we make this work? Uh, I knew that I was going to graduate in about two years or three years time. So I thought, okay. how about if I work with the younger students, those who are level or a year or two younger, number one, it's uh-huh. going to be easier for me to convince them because they believe I'm superior and I know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> number two, it's, it's going to be beautiful for the sustainability of the organization. And number three, um, if they see me work, they can pick up some things that I have done or become some traits that they can also take, you know, improve and develop. So for me, I went to the levels or the years behind me, that was like two or three levels. I picked one or two people from each of them and I shared the idea with them, shared the vision with them. And it was just amazing how they embraced it entirely. Incidentally, there was somebody, and that was one lesson I learned about having a dream. There is somebody outside there that would always believe in what you're doing, Maybe because they've done their own research and they were just looking for somebody to kickstart it and be an added follower. So that was the experience for me. They they came in in less than three months. We got the ten people sorted and we started the organization.
0: Wow, wow, that's that's absolutely amazing. I, I love I love hearing your, your perseverance and it's always tied up with that strong analytical sense of, of really thinking through your decisions, um, which I, I absolutely love um, and admire. Thank you very yeah. much, John. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> next, I. I want to talk about that more and talk about how you think about all of your, your entrepreneurial pursuits. But before that, just, just to add on to your experiences, I want to talk about Afromine. Um, so can you just give us a, a background, a summary of, of Afromine and, and what you're doing?
1: So I tell people that Afromine is a community of young mineral professionals, um, particularly in Africa. Um, our goal is to build a community of people who love mining or mineral-related careers and have a community of people who Particularly for those who are young, because we know that there is going to be a surge for minerals in the next couple of years. And if we get together at this very young age, by the time in the next 10 to 20 years, we would most likely be at the helm of decision making in the mining industry. And not even in the mining industry, I've had friends who currently left mining to work in banks. So, across several industries in Africa and even beyond, if we become a community now, by that time, it'll be easier to push agendas, it'll be easier to um, lobby for things that need to be lobbied for, particularly for the industry and particularly for the good of the common man. So we are, like I said, a community who focuses on three major binding pillars. The first is tribe like I said, with the community. The second is mind shifting and what we do with mind shifting is we are trying to improve the the perception of people um, about mining and the third thing that we center all our activities around is bridge building so we know that some of us are digital natives we grew up with technologies Uh, but people some people who are older than ourselves were probably not super in tune with technology but they have amazing experiences and knowledge but and I know that there would always be a need for them to transfer that knowledge to us. And we can, as much as possible, digitize that knowledge uh, or solve the mining challenges that, that we currently have through technology. So based on these three binding pillars, we set out activities around them to ensure that we do this um, sustainably. And that's what we do in um, AFMI. Interesting. Uh, so
0: on those three pillars, I, I want to ask, were there specific experiences or where did you derive those three pillars?
1: Okay. Um, I mentioned to you how I went on the internet, you know, many years ago, reading and learning about mining. Yes. Um, one particular experience that I, <laughs> one, one, one particular story that, that I found interesting to was, there was this day I was working in, you know, into class and I found this lecturer hold a magazine. And I was just curious, this is mining related. How can I get, lay my hands on this magazine? I saw that there's a magazine called. Um, I didn't approach mm-hmm. him, but I saw him walk past, and I saw the name. It was called E and MJ Engineering and Mining Journal. I got home to that particular. day, went on internet to search for Engineering and Mining Journal. I saw that you could subscribe for it. I subscribed for it. I kept getting you know the copies every single month till I graduated. Even after I graduated, mm-hmm. but in addition to that, I went to look for similar magazines online. I discovered about four in particular, and. Each of them, I kept reading them months to month. You know, I kept building up my intellectual capacity in mining, building up my mindset and building up the scope of mining. And I discovered that there was a global challenge, even though it's not as much experienced in, in, in Nigeria or Africa, but it's a global challenge. And I pride myself in sometimes saying that I have the, you know, the ability to, to think we ahead. And I said, if it's a global challenge now, by the time it comes to Africa, if we are prepared enough for it, we could have, you know, been... You know, way ahead of providing uh, or, or sorry, of preferring solutions. So yeah. I thought, okay, why don't you start it now? So that was how I got those ideas, and um, we've been with it since then. Interesting. So,
0: so they're they're derived from others' knowledge. That it's not a hard agenda. It's something that you've really cultivated um, through through the learnings of others.
1: Yes, through the learnings of others, but also. Um, Somehow, you know, with my interactions with people here, you can see it play out, right? They are most likely validating what you read somewhere, what you mm-hmm. understood somewhere. So for me, that was it. I, I knew that that was it. So let's get it first.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So so I want to ask this. I feel like this is always a huge barrier for young entrepreneurs. Um, so I think it's, it's already a major step to have that courage to be able to think big and think in this long-term vision. But then I think the next big barrier to that is transforming the vision into reality. Can you share how you transform this vision for a more sustainable, better community of young mining professionals in Africa? How how are you making that a reality?
1: Um, Thanks for that compliment, I would say. Uh, I keep saying every day that I just want to be somebody who have these amazing ideas. I don't want to be known as somebody who can think things through, but I want to be known as somebody who can deliver on what is what thought about. is thought about. And I think every day I keep asking myself, am I doing it right? Uh, is there a better way to do it? <laughs> um, sharing on how I did it, I think I failed, you know. Um, even though it was a success story, there were things I learned from there that I've, that I've had to transfer into into how I run this organization. Um, the first thing I would say is take action. Um, uh, it was so being a reserved person is always difficult to take action because you just love to be in front of a computer just researching. And take action could be as simple as reaching out to a friend and saying, "This is what I think. You no, know, how can I move forward with it?" So I did that with a number of friends, and interestingly, there would always be this one person who believes in what you're doing. And they said, okay, I think we can do it. Let's push forward. And something I'm learning to do currently is to reach out to people who have done something similar and just share with, with them. I say, this is what I think. It might not be after it doesn't have to be in your industry, but it might, I'll just reach out to them and say, I'm I'm struggling with having to create a community here. I know you've done it with, with this and that. Could you give me one or two ideas on how to do it? Um so that was something I did that I think was um, also very instrumental. Uh, but something I love to say is that not everybody would love to read, but I read a lot of books and usually is in the general of business. So when I read, I read about specific, um, specific divisions of businesses mm-hmm. like management, uh, like decision making, I love decision making so much, like finances. So when it comes to reading about management, because I just kind of think I'm not somebody who is very organized, I, then I read about structures of organizations and how they make decisions, and I correlate to a lot of interviews. that I, I love watching entrepreneurial interviews, uh, so correlate it how they make their decisions. I'm like, Yes, I can do this. I can replicate this. So um, that's 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 some of the ways I've have been able to do it. Or do is it. not exhaustive, but it gives pointers to how it can be done.
0: Could get interesting. So I, I want to come back to that decision making and organization concept. Um, but before we do that, I, I just want to talk about where do you see Aftermind going? Like, what's your what's your five year plan?
1: Thank you. Um, we're still a very young organization. Um, that's that's what I say uh, because sometimes we keep starting. Is this project you know intuitive? Does it generate the results we, we want? Uh, but one thing I've always said from the beginning is if the community doesn't know where we are going currently, we know that in next couple of years, we'll figure it out. There'll be something that will just change the, the trajectory of how we operate. Um, so far, we've grown our base in a number of African countries. As As we currently speak, I think we have satellite operations in about six to 10 countries. And we also have volunteers in, more than 10 countries, coming from more than 10 countries. Um, last time I checked our volunteer database, um, people that have signed up are over 250 people in less than two years. Of That's incredible. Absolutely. Incredible. Uh, and the, the, in, the interesting part of it is these are early career professionals, like I mentioned, um, those who are intending to become. Um, full-time staffs within the mining industry and it's it's across the spectrum from geologists to mining engineers to environmental specialists oh, even to communications you know it's <laughs> people who need wow. media so it, it's just involved in broad spectrum so as much as possible we're trying to engage them to see how they can just believe in the mission some more and also see the broader perspective of the whole mining value chain and how we can grow together so in the next 10 years we hope to be one of the premier Professional organizations within uh, mining, and not specifically for mineral professionals only, or engineers, or metallurgists, or geologists. Even if all you do is just admin, and you see that you can be a part of mining. If all you do is publicity and marketing, and you feel like, based on your interactions with us, you you see yourself in that space. You know, just just like I was speaking to you before the the. The conversation started, this recording started about your first speaker who had a very broad background, but chosen mining was something that gave a purpose. That is what we're planning to be in Africa.
0: That's, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and so my, my last question on here, well, well two things. So, so first you said you're, you're looking for AfroMind to be one of the premier organizations. I want to say that in my opinion, it already is. Uh, you guys are seeing a, a level of growth that's absolutely astounding. And you're advancing our industry in ways that I don't think that we have seen other organizations do. Uh, but I wanted to also ask you: Can you elaborate on what volunteers do? Because I think that's something that's that's pretty new for a lot of mining organizations.
1: Um, volunteers are literally people who spend a part of their time to see that they can contribute to the growth of others. Um, so okay. there are a number of activities that. We have lined up for them, uh, even though some of them we are test running and some of them are not successful, which which I always like to say because it is important for us to fill out something to better the other. Um, so first is mentorship. Some of them have this experience that they can share with people who don't have. So for instance, one of our projects involved us um, having to visit some high school students, letting them know of the career options within mining. And the first interaction mm-hmm. with them even though they were people who were in science classes they could not even relate to it of course some of them had seen the mind around you know their environments but they couldn't relate to what is happening then and there. so we explained to them this is and this and this is what the operations look like and you can literally find career path in any of these spaces so that was one thing we do just the mentorship um you know, mm-hmm. just like one of our pillars talked about just the the bridge building. We have experienced, more experienced professionals to who pick up mentors from those who just started to share their minds with them, to share how they can plan their career. And um, our, our future plans is to develop, you know, probably one of the premier um, fellowship programs that is specifically tailored to mineral professionals, which is something um, we have not, I, I don't think I've seen within mining. Um, no, so I, that is-
0: Yeah, that, that'd be new and I
1: think it's it's needed. <laughs> Yeah, so I think with collaborations within with organizations such as YMP, that can come to to, to fruition. Um, and that thing we do is this uh, monthly event where we invite one professional to you know it falls in line with our binding pillars to share the experience. I'm sure probably that's one how you got to learn about us. Um, and it's, it's been fascinating when I realized that as much as people want to watch it later, people even want to watch it live. And and, and this professional simply just tell them, you know, even though I have all of this technical knowledge, I, I, I'm not here to share this technical knowledge. I'm only here to share, you my, share with you my career path. So I think if I would had that experience earlier in my career, it would, have decided, it would have been very useful for me. So in deciding what part of mining I would have loved. So yeah, that is that is some of the activities we do, and this is not exhaustive. This is just a, a tip of the iceberg.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you have many other projects going on, and um, they're all. I'm looking forward to seeing how they how they come to fruition. And and for all the listeners out there, you, you humbly mentioned the uh, interviews that you do every month, and um, I'll be setting a link to that inside of the um, description for this episode because they're they are absolutely phenomenal, um, and everyone should at least take a look. Um, so good, good. I want to jump now onto kind of some of the final topics that I want to touch on. And so we're 40 minutes in um, and I want to start asking these bigger, more meta questions about how you think through um, decision-making economics and the future of mining. So, so let's start off with decision-making um, earlier on. You said that you're, you're fascinated with how organizations make decisions. Um, yes, I, I am as well. <laughs> and so I, I want to ask what's, what's your favorite decision-making model? Why do you advocate that? And, yeah, give us some good background on it.
1: All right, so let me just say that in person that uh, my master's thesis or my master's uh, report was based on decision-making. <laughs> so uh, within the mining industry and what I so did- So you're a did real was, expert. Yeah, <laughs> well, you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did there was how decision uh, decisions can be made about mining technologies. And I stumbled on this model that I found very fascinating. It was it's called MCDM for short, and it means multi-criteria decision making. And I developed this tool. That's all you need to do is to have your technology um, technology matrix. That's literally a list of all technologies that you want, you know, for your organization, and look at the key KPIs that you want for them. to so, and those are factors that you think would would influence. The, the operational performance of the organization and using some mathematical and statistical you know um, processing, then you mm-hmm. come up with a ranking of the specific one that you want. And the ranking is very objective in to, to my own point of view. So for me, I think at this point in time, that is probably my favorite decision-making model. It's called multi-criteria decision-making model. And it's beautiful because you can use it for both um, quantitative and qualitative um, decision-making.
0: Thinking back to what you were talking about earlier it really ties in uh, with, you know, ranking your, your key performance indicators, your KPIs on your universities all the way back and now writing a thesis. <laughs> it. Um, so I do, though, I want to ask more about this um, because it's, some, it's new for me and I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by it. So how do you make sure it's objective, especially for something like technology that if, you, if you're subjectively ranking them, yeah, how, how do you eliminate that subjectivity?
1: Um, it's interesting because whatever like it or not, even though we claim to be rational, there is that, that truth that we are not rational, right? And if, and the fact that humans are even involved in the process means that the chances of eliminating it is, is quite high. <laughs> um, and the truth is that every, every oppression is very, very different. And the fact that every oppression is very, very... Like, I'm talking about my oppression here. And the fact that every operation is very different means that you need to tamper a little bit with the algorithms so in a sense the objectivity can in probability you know based on probability would be would be higher than the subjectivity so in my in my own estimation if the objectivity is 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 70 to 80 percent I think I can roughly say it is objective compared to subjectivity being being higher than objectivity so based on the probability i would just rather say that it is
0: uh, okay, I see, I see. what you're saying. So, you're, so you're shooting for a, a metric in terms of your objectivity. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then my second question on this is, how are you seeing it applied? I mean, is this is this being applied through like software, and where is it being applied? Um, what's what's kind of the process?
1: Um. So when when we did it, it was an hypothetical scenario that we used. Um, and, there was no organization that was willing to take, to support the project at that particular time. Uh, in fact, it was published. It was published in one of this general Resource Policy, I don't know if you know about it. Oh, was um, a great journal. Yes, yeah, thank you. Uh, so it's, it's just there. I don't know, but I, I've seen, last time I checked the 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 index on Google Scholar, I discovered that a number of people have cited it, probably they've used it in some of their, their, their studies. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, but I just the knowledge is outside there. and. Uh, if you need help, you can always reach out to me and I can put you through on how to apply it.
0: Awesome, well, I'll, I'll make sure to also put a link to that in the description because I, I know I have a new a new paper to have on my reading list. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so cool. Then my, my last question on this is, do you apply that same type of um, matching, kind of matching your technologies, matching your strategies to KPIs is that the same type of decision making that you use for within your organizations?
1: Um, at this particular point, no. Um, you know, as just funny enough just before this podcast. I was reading an article from from um, the MIT Sloan School of Management in one of their uh, magazines, and I was I was learning you know how. How decision making is important and how it can be used, be used made based on data and be used, made based on intuition. And I realized that because we are still a very young organization, every critical step we are making, it is 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 usually based on intuition. I feel this is where the direction we should go. But as soon as you know we get people in our case, uh, volunteers and listeners who are people who want to learn about mining in, then we begin to build these data points. We begin to build this. Databases, and based on their response to how we, you know, use intuition to to produce um, programs and how they interact with those programs, we can I use that data point to strategically look at mathematical, statistical, probably use probability to get you know their response and make our decisions based on that. But at this particular point, because we are new, all of our ideas are usually intuition based rather than database.
0: I've never heard anyone explain that process, but that, that makes complete sense to me. And it was something else I wanted to ask you was that you're obviously technically inclined. Um, and when you're in this startup phase, there are a lot of intuition based decisions. And I, I know for me personally, I'm always wanting to do research, trying to put some type of data behind my intuitions. Is that something that, that you also feel or how do you balance the, the want to do something technical with the trust of intuition?
1: I think I think it's it's very it's very very true. Um, I remember when I was I was you know when we were designing those three biding pillars, for instance, um, when I was having a conversation with uh, our set of leaders and we were discussing about how what was important and what was needed, you know, within the money industry. I realized that we we kept saying um, there was a need for for you know. There's, sorry, there's this gap between those who are getting into the industry and those who don't want to pursue the degree anymore. It's like, how can we substantiate that? You know, Some people said, so I just said it. And what I immediately did was I went online to do some research. I realized that it was not really affecting us in Africa, but it was affecting a number of non-African countries. And I felt like if we position ourselves as an organization, we could Supply talent, if possible, to other countries who want talent. So yes, the industry came during the conversation that um, let's ar- arrange activities around this, but we need to, to substantiate that and went looking for data. So I think it's important to substantiate when there is data. And just like one of your last speakers said in in, in um, you know in on the podcast, he said it is if nobody validates your data outside, then it is not existent. Like just ensure that you are ending up from the very start oh yes yeah <laughs> that was uh jerry van on episode one yeah yes, yes. But, but i have a question though so if everybody was is waiting for validation who would take the first step
0: yes that's this <laughs> that's a really good question that's something i think about a lot um yeah. and that's that's one of the things i think about in terms of a of a startup is it always feels like you're trying to take that first step and everyone's trying mm-hmm. to ask you what what's your evidence for this what works mm. Um, mm. And so I guess my answer to that, and that's a great question, is that it takes the courageous entrepreneur. It takes an yeah. entrepreneur like yourself to be able to go and say, this this seems right. We have enough information to make an inference and mm. let's experiment.
1: Mm. Mm. True. True. I, I do agree with you. Uh, and the beauty of it about it all is that if you fail, you pack up and um, move on to the next activity. You, know, you learn from the experience. <laughs> Roots of wisdom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I so, can't.
0: Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, um, you know, funny enough that we're talking about entrepreneurship and also decision making. I don't know if I mentioned earlier that within mining, my favorite courses. Uh, my, my favorite course actually is mineral economics. <laughs> Wait, I was you just know. gonna jump there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's incidentally during my final year of undergrad. Um, there was this lecturer came in, talked about mineral economics, just the you know, overline overview of, of mineral economics. I was like, that is interesting, how, how? so there's a part of mining that has to do with finances and everything. Then When I got into masters, I, I ensured that that was going to be my specialization during masters. So when I got deep, uh, deep dive into it, I realized that there was this part of it that had to do with mineral marketing. Beneficiation, economics, um, you know, mineral economics in itself, and I was like, "Oh, wow. this so is not about extraction only; it's not about finding these minerals. There's also a business side of it." I, I, mean, I immediately loved it, and my most fascinating part is the mineral marketing. I was like, "Oh, really? So there's a marketing division in mine just like we have marketing for a corporate company. What do they do?" I learned that you would, they would go source for contracts for the you know amounts and uh, the number of of concentrate that they made from their minds, the product quality, and I was like, oh, wow. So for me, I just, when I learned about it and how they do their forecast and planning based on data and forecasted growth mm-hmm. of countries and is not just communities, I was like, this, is, this has to be the best industry in the world. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh that's great uh, and it's, that's a that's a perfect segue to the very last topic I wanted to discuss with you which is economics and I think that th- there's a lot of talk um, particularly within Africa about how how mining and how commodities will be used within Africa and so I wanted to I wanted to get your take on that do you see that a lot of African materials that are being produced are going to start being self-invested um, and then a second part of that is, What do you see the role being between international mining organizations, you know, uh, expats and the internal organizations that are starting to thrive and develop the African mining industry?
1: Okay. Um, If I heard you clearly, you said the first one has to do with um, self-investment, right?
0: Yes. Yes. So sorry. Yeah, I should have separated this. So the first question being, what are your thoughts on kind of the economic growth of Africa in terms of the commodities it will need?
1: Okay. Um, I think we've, we've, we've always had minerals in Africa. And um, I think one of the things that we have not had is literally you know, proper management of it to, for the economic growth of Africa. Um, and that, or proper management of the resources that, that comes from the sales of it. But literally, I can argue that almost all African countries has one form of mineral or the other. If they don't have the mineral, they are either financing the mineral. Take for instance, um, I've not heard of any mineral from Mauritius, uh, but it's an amazing um, financial district in Africa. Um, in, Niger- in, in Nigeria, we, according to some you know organizations, we have about forty something minerals. Although not everything has been proven to be economically viable for you know extraction, um, the in, my last read about from one of their roadmaps in Nigeria is that they have some critical minerals. And in South Africa, we've known for years, and if not centuries now, that they are very vast with minerals like diamonds, like um, gold, and how it fed the world. Um, just recently, they, we learned of another huge discovery of gold in Uganda, um, of course, still waiting to be validated. And just if, if I keep naming a number of African countries, you keep finding at least one particular mineral that is there. So yeah, economically, I think what we just need is proper stewardship of those minerals. Uh, some of, the, for instance, one of the most, you know, thriving countries in Africa is, is Botswana. Uh, we know how DBS have presence in that country and how the country expressly sold this company, for you to function, you must, you know, process to a, to a certain level within the country. How they engaged all their locals, you know, within the communities around the mine and even, you know, within the country to ensure that the Diamond is not exported raw. It has to be processed. So people are gathering and learning new skills. The economic, um, the economic well being of you know citizens are improved. In fact, at last in my head, their their currency is one of the strongest in Africa. So if if we have that proper stewardship, there would always be something that, you know, beneficial for the people and the populace. Same thing, same thing with, with, with South Africa. So I can go on and on uh, <laughs> about that
0: let's i like that um so then my my second question on that is do you have any strong opinions related to how historically at least there has been a lot of what some may call like exploitation in terms of of where profits are made versus where the resources exist Um, and do you see that changing in the future or is this an issue that you're concerned about
1: it is. It is. Um, I always don't like to comment on 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 things I don't have control about. <laughs> uh, but um, one thing I've learned is that back in those days, or when probably those things happened, people were less knowledgeable about how best to do what, whatever it is. Particularly Africans, and uh, I might be wrong. Please, please, please don't take my word for it. Um, so, what we wanted was, you know, income for sustenance. Yeah. because Income from form sustenance. We could not, you know, see, uh, or a number of us could not see beyond just that sustenance. You know, it just takes me back to the Abraham Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs, right? I, it's only after you're, you know, sus, you know, sus- being able to provide those basic needs for yourself, then you begin to think about how can I get better things for the community and you know, for the people around me. So I think, as we currently stand, Africa or the number of Africans I've interacted with and been able to be around, I've realized that there's a better way for us to do things. And that's why we do hear about conversations around, okay, let's have more benefits, beneficiation in mining within this, con- within this continent without having to, to ship it abroad. Even though we have been told that um, the economics are not good, you know, let us try and let us fail at it. If we fail, then we know that it's really not good, rather than us being told. And that, that is how you we are, we are supposed to do it. So, yeah. Um, that's my opinion about it. I think it's going to change and it's changing. And also you asked about, um, um, I think something about expats when you asked those questions. Together.
0: Yeah. So, so my point there, it was going back to the second question I was just asking you, which was kind of, you know, with, with the history of mining companies, there are a lot of times where on a more operational level where you're bringing in expats from Australia, Canada, the U S UK, wherever, um, and bringing them in to run an operation. And you know, there's there's companies like Barrick who take a, a strong stance on this. Um, and so, do you have any strong feelings about how that plays into the the mining culture and the organizational structure within Africa?
1: Yeah, I think I think at the initial stages, it's always like that. And based on my experience too, with, with operations in, in in Africa, I've come to learn that. When it's starting new, we don't have the expertise. We There's no way a mind starts in a small community, let's say in, in Bouchester, Nigeria, where you get 40 years old, you know, geologists come in and do things there. No, let's bring them in. Let's tutor and nurture people around the community. And once these people are mature enough to manage the sense themselves, they will take a hold on it and manage it properly. And I think that is how South Africa started. You know, I, I, I used to be a habit listener of, of um, Digging Deep podcast by Rob, yes, and and you know guest after guest, you realize that most of the people you invited at the early stages of this podcast were professionals who schooled in the UK, um, Capron school of mine, who schooled in in probably in the US or in Australia, but when they were done, they came to Africa to work. They came to South Africa specifically because that was where I was thriving at that particular time, and most of them, after a couple of years, um, a number of them remained, but most of them went back. As we stand today, the professionals in South Africa are qualified to work anywhere. In fact, one of our guests in one of our programs, who has turned on to be a a very good friend of mine, works in Australia, and she keeps saying that most of the professionals in Australia are from Africa. You find them from Ghana, you find them from South Africa, you find them from Burkina Faso being, you know, know, being accepted in Australia currently. And... And the same thing to have a friend who, works, who, who, is from, who, who is from Ghana, works in Burkina Faso, who is, who is from Ghana, works in Liberia. So because they've been able to develop that expertise from those who came into Tutor and Nurture them, they've gained that much experience that could be shared within other African countries and even beyond.
0: Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think slightly different context, but I know here um, in the Southwest, we have a lot of transfer between the Latin American countries and, and the U.S. Um, so I find that fascinating. I wonder if it's just a, a function of people who are interested in mining that they like to travel and find new places. Um, <laughs> that's that's absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, well, I, I can argue that for you to love mining, you must you must love some element of trap, particularly if you're in the geological sciences. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Um, well, good. We've we've covered a lot, and it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, but And I want to be very courteous of your time. And so my last question for you is for all the listeners out there, what what would be the few couple tangible actions that you would like to share with them um, in terms of, of building a better mining industry, becoming a better leader, manager, decision maker, you name it, what would you recommend?
1: I don't know if it's an African proverb, but it's one proverb that I love so much. It said, it says if you want to travel far, go with people, but if you want to travel fast, go alone. Um, there is that misconception, I think, of how people can set you back when you um, want to pursue an amazing, you know, vision or amazing goal or personal goal. In, in fact, um, but based on my experience, um, I think it is. And by the way, I have very few years of experience, not, 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 not a lot, <laughs> but I can see that it might be very slow at the beginning, but when it comes to um, a prospective future, particularly one where you want to class it yourself, it is very important to go to people who believe in what you're doing. And, and it might have to do with a lot of tutoring and a lot of nurturing, but in the end, it will always pay off. That's something I've, I've come to learn. I can't think of a
0: better way to, to end the podcast there. Uh, well, Toby, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And you know we're, we're going to stay in touch. And I'm, I'm very excited to see how everything arises with Aphromind and your PhD dissertation. I can't wait to read it. Uh, but it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your your background with with me and, and all of our guests.
1: Thank you, Helen. Um, I think it's been a, an absolute pleasure of mine to be here, too. Um, I just hope that I was able to deliver as promised and um, I hope somebody can learn one or two from my experience too. But most importantly, you can always come and work with us at AfriMind and also come and share your experience with us. We would totally, yes, we would love to have you wherever you're listening, listening to us from. So, Ken, thank you once again. And yes, my, my, my dissertation and you would always be abreast of.